You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The high holidays are now over. We have one more major holiday coming up. So for all practical purposes, the high holidays won't be over for another week and a half or almost two weeks. That's the one time of the year starting at the beginning of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which generally comes out in September. And for a period of about three weeks, we are in the midst of what we call the high holidays. And hopefully our prayers have been accepted, and hopefully we have been inscribed for a healthy and happy new year. On the national level, it's interesting that Israel at the moment appears to be on the brink of having new relations with a number of Arab countries, especially Saudi Arabia which is an unprecedented development, really unprecedented, something we could not have dreamed of 75 years ago. Apparently, we are on the threshold of such a relationship. Right now, Israel is going through an internal crisis probably the worst that we've had since the state came into being. It has to do about the judicial reform. And unfortunately, it sort of casts a shadow over everything that's happening now. Because most people uh, who were involved in this, uh, in the uh, in the change, apparently haven't explained their position as much as they should. What they're trying to do, as I understand it, is cut down the power of the few people who make decisions concerning the choice of judges. Because judges are very important. We don't have a constitution here. And over the course of the last 25 or 30 years, the judicial section has taken on a lot of power, much out of proportion to the way it is in countries like the United States. So the, uh, and also the the present uh, government is made up of a coalition. It only has a majority by about four seats in the Knesset. So the important thing is we have to prioritize our national interest. And right now, the big thing coming up, apparently, is relations with Saudi Arabia. But that should be part of our broader foreign policy objectives. Because we have to recognize that relations with Saudi Arabia are particularly important because of its regional and global uh, power that it has. Uh, As I understand it, by the way, there was a time for many years when Saudi Arabia was very powerful because it provided oil. But now there are other sources of uh, energy, 
and Saudi Arabia apparently is looking around to get other friends. And the 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 crown prince of Saudi Arabia has uh, apparently made some interviews, in, including one he had a win interview with Fox News, and he spoke about possible relations with Israel, and that's really important. The, uh, apparently, for many years, perhaps, there have been uh, secret contacts with, uh, with the Saudi Arabia, but now it's coming closer to the surface. And this is really important. Saudi Arabia, of course, has its own demands. They pretend, I think, I'm not sure how sincere it is, they have, uh, they have a deep interest for the Palestinian issue. But they're also interested in regional stability. I'm sure they're worried about uh, what's happening in Iran. And uh, they want increased support from the United States. And they have all these considerations themselves vis-a-vis -vis their relations with Israel. So, uh, there was a recent discussion reported in a newspaper by the Jewish Institute for National Security, and they advocated for a U.S.-Israel mutual defense treaty, something we've never had in the past, and they claimed that an alliance of this nature with the United States would be good for Israel and the United States also because we have military, intelligence, and high-tech partnership with the United States. It's not a one-way street. It's not simply that years ago, Israel was on the receiving end of, of intelligence and things of that nature, and now Israel is really a, a full partner contributing to the advancement of the other countries. So... There is a potential possibility of Israel-Saudi normalization, and they would, and if there was, that would really be good for the United States. So, uh, the now it's interesting, by the way. One of the questions we have here in Israel is how much does our uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu? have control over his coalition. He needs the coalition to stay in power. And uh, the question is, can they dictate his uh, courses of action? He has to, uh, he, he feels, and he, he said, he spoke on CNN, and he said his coalition will not obstruct a potential agreement with Saudi Arabia. So uh, the the our our prime minister that must must demonstrate that the national interest is the most important thing. It, it might even mean breaking up this coalition and making a new coalition. But the the important thing is the future of the state, not petty politics. The uh, now, there has recently been a controversy, controversy within the coalition at, because it has to do with the Palestinian Authority receiving vehicles and rifles. So 
the 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 the, the, the coalition could well fall apart. And the question is, does our prime minister hopefully keep the broad national interest at heart? The security implications of such decisions have to be carefully weighed, but it's important that politics do not obstruct policies aimed at the long-term success of our nation. We want to strengthen the ties with Riyadh, with Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Uh, the final, and the final, uh, the bottom line is, we must expect of our national leaders to act in accordance with the national interest, and not simply by narrow political considerations. The uh, I I I believe. Uh, according to the polls, a, a, the majority of Israelis would like to see a deal with Saudi Arabia. The question is, would it entail concessions with the Palestinians? Because you have to keep in mind that the Palestinians are right here next to us. How much can we compromise when it comes to the Palestinians? because we cannot endanger our personal safety. So hopefully there'll be a U.S.-Israeli-Saudi deal, but in, in such a way that we in Israel can support it without endangering ourselves vis-a-vis the Palestinians. We are at a critical, critical period now over the last uh, three or four years, we've made relations with countries in the Muslim world, which, which we could never have dreamed of 50 years ago. And hopefully we would advance these relationships, but not at the endangerment, endangerment of our personal safety when it comes vis-a-vis the Palestinians because it's nice to have relations with the countries around us, that's obvious. Yet, we, be able, we want to be able to walk down the street safely here in Israel. And if we can't come to some kind of uh, settlement, I, I guess that's the best word to use with the Palestinians, then the all the foreign relations will become meaningless. We have to have a mo- the The bottom line is we need personal safety when we walk down the street. It's interesting. I live here in Jerusalem. Tremendous percentage of the people that I see at the shopping centers, at the malls, are Arabs. We have to live with the Arabs. And I'm quite sure that the a, a majority, at least, I think, of the Arabs are happy to live under Israeli rule rather than under the rule of the PLO. They also are interested in their personal safety. So it's a very delicate situation. It's a, the presence of the Palestinians here right, right essentially down our throats is not going to go away. 
And as much as you want to have good relations with the nations around us, we can't give up on our personal safety. It's my hope and prayer that our politicians can rise above themselves and look at the national interest and choose those ways that are best for us in the future. Very, very sensitive times. We need far-seeing leadership that goes beyond petty politics and looks forward to the future of the state of Israel. So I just wanted to make that statement at the beginning of the program, at the beginning of a new year, and, and things will look better now than they've done for than they have for many years. But let's hope that we keep going in the correct direction. Now I want to say a quick word about a naval battle that uh, occurred 50 years ago, and I sort of have a personal interest in it, in a sense, because I work for Israel Aircraft. And uh, Israel Aircraft developed what's called the Gabriel Missile. And uh, in the, a battle took place on the night of the 6th and 7th October back in 1973, beginning of the October War. And it was the first sea battle in history in which sea-to-sea missiles were used. They were developed by... A, a, a section of Israel Aircraft Industries where I worked, and they created a complex and integrated weapon system that was produced by Israel Aircraft Industries using locally developed Israeli technology, and I was privileged to be among the crew that developed it. I worked with some extremely intelligent people, and they equipped the ships with the most advanced military equipment of the time 50 years ago, including a radar system, advanced weapon systems, the Gabriel missile, and other capabilities. They led to a successful conclusion against the Arabs, and all of this was because stuff developed by Israel Aircraft Industries. And uh, the, the uh, Israel, uh, even the Israel Aircraft Industries even sent its personnel to Israel's naval bases to provide real-time assistance with the systems operation and maintenance. And I was a junior member, very, very junior member of, the, of those groups. I came to work uh, in Israel in 1969, and I started working with these people, and uh, Israel's naval forces began, to, really became among the advanced in the world. They uh, had a decisive Israeli victory. All the Syrian vessels that took part in the battle were sunk, and included three Syrian missile boats, a torpedo boat, a minesweeper, with no losses whatsoever or any damage whatsoever to the Israeli forces. And in addition, this was the first battle in which defensive measures 
and electronic warfare were used by the Israeli Navy, and um, they made the first, they were the first naval force in the world to use such measures in naval warfare. As I said, I was a, really a very, very junior member of the team involved, and the people who ran the program were really very bright, uh, interesting people, by the way. And I, I was privileged to be part of the crew, a very junior member. The Yom Kippur War, 50 years ago, was the first time the Israeli Navy relied in totally Israeli-made equipment, and the uh, the Israel aircraft industries moved to the forefront of technology and all kind of concepts adapted uh, to the actuality of the threats of operation. In other words, the people who developed these programs developed them knowing exactly the type of forces and under what conditions the Israeli Navy would have to operate. So the systems were designed for real-life situations. And so that was really a major step forward. Today, Israel aircraft industries produce the Navy's main systems, whether it's for detection, air defense, or attack. The the Gabriel missile and uh, the radars are among the Israel Navy's main systems, representing the most advanced forefront of technology to provide defense for the state of Israel. And I, I, I mentioned this because I was privileged to work with these people who did this development. And I was a very, very junior member. And uh, I was in awe of these people, how bright they were, how advanced they were. I had, I had come to the United States. I had worked with some uh, real leaders in scientific fields. I came here and I found that they were really first class, really. So uh, they have all kinds of systems developed by Israel aircraft, and uh, they have... Uh, the, the Gabriel missiles were really an advanced thing at the time, and they're still part of the Naval Commando missile boats and uh, uh, units uh, insignia. Missiles have been obviously upgraded over the years, and they're now integrated to Israeli Navy ships in their most precise configuration. They're capable of ranges of hundreds of kilometers, under changing air and sea conditions, and the, uh, they're really something. And Israel, air, Israel aircraft essentially was the backbone of the development of these missiles, which are the finest and most advanced in the world. So it's interesting that uh, when I came here, I was absolutely shocked in a very positive way to see how how advanced Israel quietly was in the um, in the field of missiles, offensive and defensive. And uh, so it's 50 years now after the Battle of Latakia when Israel, Israel really, really, Israel really 
punched a Syrian missile missile and the, uh, their navy and their and their minesweeper and their torpedo boats and a really one-sided victory with with uh, using equipment that had designed and developed right here in Israel using only Israeli technology. And I think that's a really, a really nice birthday. 50th birthday of the Battle of Latakia, when Israel, Israel's Navy used weaponry developed by Israel aircraft industry to make a really decisive victory. And it's really something to celebrate. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. It's interesting. I don't know how many people uh, are aware, but the United Nations has recognized the religious-based terror as significant, dangerous, and unique enough to put it in a category by itself. So August 22nd, was designated by the United Nations as the International Day commemorating the victims of acts of violence based on religion or belief. I didn't I saw an article in the paper, I didn't realize this, but that's a very that's a mouthful. The International Day commemorating the victims of acts of violence based on religion or belief. So, though, it's important to recognize that one of the longest ongoing terror campaigns in history is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, now called the Palestinian Authority, its terror against Israel. It is likewise a religious war against the Jews. While the Palestinian Authority tells the international community that it fights and kills Israelis on nationalistic grounds, it tells its own people that killing Israelis and Jews is for Allah. It is therefore critical that the United Nations recognize Palestinian terror as terror based on religion and it should be condemned along with all the religious-based terror that the UN condemns worldwide. Now, there was a recent announcement by Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah party that makes it clear that not only Hamas, but even the presumed secular Fatah 
sees murder of Israelis as a religious act, not just a nationalistic act. Uh, the, uh, after an Israeli kindergarten teacher was killed, murdered, by a Palestinian terrorist while driving a car with her daughter, Fatah publicized on one of its official channels that its Al-Qaeda Martyrs Brigade took credit for the killing as an Islamic religious act, opening its declaration with a quote from the Quran. It said, fight them. Allah will punish them by your hands and will disgrace them. With Almighty Allah's help, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs announces its responsibility for carrying out the self-sacrificing operation in Hebron, in which a female Zionist settler was killed and another was serious wounded. Uh, this, in other words, the attack against Israelis was not a nationalistic murder. It was a religious murder. That's what they tell their own people. Even further, several days after the attack in which this mother was killed, this Jewish mother, the terrorist who committed the attack was captured and turned out to be a Hamas member. And Hamas posted a video of the murderer speaking just before being arrested showing that he likewise sees his murdering of Israeli civilians as an act for Allah. Allah Akbar, he said, victory for Islam and the Muslims. Those who have come to arrest me, by Allah they will be defeated. Allah is willing they will retreat from this land. And this was... Uh, on a news network, the Kuds News Network, on August 23, 2023. Other statements posted in recent months by Fatah's Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade define both killing Israelis and dying as a martyr as directors of the Quran. Kill them wherever you overtake them. Expel them from wherever you have expelled them. Fight in the cause of Allah so they kill and are killed. This is according to Fatah on their Telegram channel, July 16, 2023. The explicit confirmation that the Palestinian Authority also sees the killing of every Israeli as an act for Allah is the Palestinian Authority's use of the Arabic word shahid. Shahid means a martyr who died for Allah. They use this term, shahid, to categorize every terrorist who dies fighting Israelis, including suicide bombers who murdered children. The Islamic martyrdom, which is called shahada in the Arabic language, can only be achieved if the action is positive for Allah. The Quran, the Quran defines this death as killed in the cause of Allah. Now, many 
Muslims will not apply this, these Quran quotes to Palestinian terrorists, the Palestinian Authority does it 100% of the time, which means that according to the Palestinian Authority, when any Palestinian murders an Israeli, a Jew, including suicide bombers, these murders are, to use the UN's words, an act of violence based on religion or belief. Moreover, the Palestinian Authority's religious leader for more than 20 years has openly called for the murder of Israelis and Jews in the name of Islam and has done this on official Palestinian Authority TV. Uh, Abbas's advisor on Islam, who is called the Supreme PA Sharia Judge Mohammed Ahabash, publicly quoted from the Quran, Kill them. Allah does not like transgressors. He then cited ten transgressions he attributes to Israelis, informing Palestinians that the Quran's kill them applies to all Israelis. He added another quote from the Quran at the end, saying, Kill them wherever you find them. The director of the Palestinian Authority Ministry of Religious Affairs a guy named um, a, um, Sheikh Majid Sagar taught that Allah, Allah willing, the end of the Jews in America that supports the Jews will be in Palestine. And the Palestinian Authority's TV's prayer for Ramadan, the holy month, was Master of the Universe, Allah delight us with the extermination of the evil Jews. Now, one of the clearest and most horrific portrayals of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as a war for the extermination of all Jews came from a Palestinian authority religious figure, Sheikh Osama Al-Tibi. He spoke on Palestinian Authority TV. He preached that Allah wrote in his book, They Are Cursed. Humanity will never be able to live together with them. These malignant genes and cursed characteristics continue. They inherited from father to son. And therefore, at the end of time, the Muslims will fight the Jews and kill them. He ended his prayer, count them and kill them one by one. Do not leave them even one. A Palestinian prayer for the extermination of the Jews. People in the West are not aware of what is publicly said by Palestinian leaders in their mosques and on their TV. Presenting the conflict with Israel as a religious war for Allah as actively being trans transmitted to the next generation of Palestinian kids for example, Fatah's educational magazine for children aged 6 to 15 doesn't leave the child any choice but to fight Israelis because instructions are said to be coming from Allah himself. They say Almighty Allah commands that Al-Aqsa Mosque and its surroundings remain under Muslim guardianship forever. 
Therefore, the Arabs always rush to defend the Al-Aqsa Mosque from the Zionist thieves, those who stole our land, to defend our Jerusalem and our land, our mosque, and our churches. We will redeem them with our blood. Unquote. Moreover, the children are taught that because it's for Allah, all Muslims must join the religious war against Israelis. We say to the Islamic nation, come to Jerusalem, to the direction of prayer of religion, to the war that will crush the injustice, kill Zion, wave the Palestinian flags in the skies of the world. All of these, I just have said, are quotations from the Palestinian Authority TV. The United Nations states that on May 28, 2019, the General Assembly adopted a resolution titled International Day Commemorating the Victims of Acts of Violence Based on Religion or Belief. So they strongly condemned any violence, any act of terrorism on the basis of or in the name of religion or belief. Since the Palestinian Authority, Fatah and Hamas, all present their acts of terror and murder of Israelis as religious acts for Allah, the time has come for the United Nations to recognize the thousands of Israeli victims of Palestinian terror as victims of acts of violence based on religion or belief. And it's time that the UN highlight and condemn the violence perpetrated by the Palestinian Authority and the terror, along with its condemnation of all religious violence around the world. So, we, we're asking for justice for victims of religious violence. The UN recognized that religious-based terror is significant. They even have a day to recognize this, but they refuse to recognize that the Palestinian Authority is the chief perpetrator of religious acts of violence against the Jewish people. All you have to do Listen to the Palestinian Authority, read the Palestinian Authority newspapers, and you see that their, their war against Israel and against is, Israeli Jews, individual Jews, is, and these acts of terror are based on religion. So far, the UN has few, refused to recognize this fact and it's simply wrong on the part of the UN. This is something that doesn't get big headlines, but it is a reality, and, it, and it's really, really it's heartbreaking that the UN, for whatever reason or, or reasons, does not recognize that the acts of the Palestinian Authority are religious acts of violence. And it's something I think you don't hear enough about, not even in Israeli news or in Israeli newspapers, but we should keep it in mind. Our struggle with the Palestinians is not simply a national struggle, it is a religious struggle, and it's something we have to keep in mind.
And since I'm talking about the Palestinians, I want to bring up another thing, a thought. Uh, a number of Jewish organizations condemned in a uh, conference on Palestinian culture taking place at the University of Pennsylvania, which is my alma mater, which includes speakers accused of anti-Semitism. The, uh, the groups decrying this conference disagree about what the sh sh school should do about it. Over this last Shabbat and the Yom Kippur holiday, which is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, was hosting what is called the Palestinian Rights Literature. Uh, the, uh, it's a festival. The event's website states that the festival is dedicated to celebrating and promoting cultural productions of Palestinian writers and artists, which sounds reasonable on paper, but the entire festival is a front to spread anti-Semitic hate. It is intentionally scheduled during the holiest days of the Jewish calendar to stop any reaction from the University of Pennsylvania Jewish communities. There's no way to deny that these speakers were carefully selected for their history of harm to the Jewish people. Over two-thirds of the speakers have track records, including support for terrorist groups and previous public scandals for their anti-Semitism. It was just held last uh, the beginning of uh, the week. The speakers who spoke there at the University of Pennsylvania have a history of rabid anti-Semitism that is not coincidental and reflects how Jew hatred on a campus is only getting worse. The, uh, in different universities, the things are happening where being Jewish or pro-Israel means facing endless hate. Universities in North America have become a place where legitimate discussion and debate are almost impossible, and every conversation about Israel has become a zero-sum game. There is plenty of discussion regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Still, the fact is the entire anti-Israel movement is per primarily driven, as I understand it, by anti-Semitism. There was a York University Multicultural Week in Canada several weeks ago, and there are people there sprayed red paint on the Israeli flag to symbolize blood. They weren't interested in peace or the well-being of the Palestinians. These people who vandalize ignore what's happening in other parts of the world, like Iran and Russia and China, or any country run by dictators. Israel is not even remotely comparable to any of these countries. The thought that a Russian student would be harassed because of what's happening between Putin and Ukraine is unimaginable, as is an American-Persian student attacked because the Islamic Republic does. So why is it then that Jewish and Israeli students have to deal with these sorts of things? Why aren't university administrators 
coming out in strong condemnation against what's happening. The University of Pennsylvania, as again I said, my alma mater, published a statement condemning anti-Semitism, claiming that it is antithetical to the university's values, yet allowing some of the world's worst leading anti-Semites to speak on the University of Pennsylvania campus is simply wrong. The um, What happens is, you think about it for a minute, platforming, allowing these speakers on campuses normalizes the hate crimes against the Jewish community. A member of the Hillel community of the University of Pennsylvania was followed into Penn Hillel by some who harassed the individual while knocking over pieces of furniture and shouting anti-Semitic obscenities. All universities, and this is my alma mater, all universities are obligated to protect all its students, including its students, primarily from the speakers affiliated with Hamas and all these hate groups. The reality is that in the University of Pennsylvania, Jewish students are forced to endure speakers who support terrorists and murder of Israelis and Jews speaking at their campus and will be likely be unable to address it. American universities have shown students at University of Pennsylvania that the bottom line is that they do not matter. The students at the University of Pennsylvania, Jewish students, are entitled to the same safety and the same consideration as any other students. And I, I regret that in my, my, my alma mater, the Jews are getting are getting bad treatment, and uh, it's something you don't hear much about. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work, and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi, this is Betsy Penn from Phoenix, Arizona, and I love Israel News Talk Radio for the interesting interviews, accurate information, spiritual guidance, political insight, humor, and passion for the truth. Three, two, one. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Street Talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few more words about anti-Semitism. In recent years, a disturbing trend has emerged. A wave of attacks targeting individuals and groups, all united by a common identity. They're Jewish. So the question is, is this merely a coincidence? Or are we witnessing a new iteration? Excuse me, a new iteration of the age-old anti-Semitism that haunted the Jewish people for about two thousand years. Now, anti-Jewish persecution is thousands of years old. 
Interestingly, the term itself, anti-Semitism, uh, didn't come into existence until the 19th century. Uh, through works of an English historian named Thomas, Thomas Carlyle. Now, some argue that the terminology is fairly new, but the uh, underlying reality for anti-Semitism has persisted for thousands of years. It wasn't called anti-Semitism until the middle of the 19th century. Uh, I read recently, as I said, that the, uh, Thomas Carlyle came up with the word, but I really think I had heard previously it, 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 the word had been invented by a, a German. I think his name was Heinrich Marr, if I'm not mistaken. Now, hatred directed at Jews as religious roots go back in 2,000 years. Uh, this sentiment finds early expression in the Torah, particularly in the book of Esther, and specifically in the verse that describes the Jewish people as distinct in their religious beliefs. That's what Haman said about the Jews. You can check that out in the Megillah, which we read on Purim. However, Religious-based animosity toward Jews took on various forms. It evolved within pagan culture. It transformed into false theories within Christian theological circles. And it found a place in Islamic discourse due to shifts in historical context. Now, the emergence of modern anti-Semitism marked a shift towards secularization, pretty much worldwide. The traditional accusations like moral distortion, divine abandonment of the Jewish people, changed, and it gave way to socioeconomic underpinnings of anti-Semitism. First, it was based, as I said, primarily on religion, but then anti-Semitism took on socioeconomic uh, aspects. This transition signifies that anti-Semitism didn't originate in the 19th century, but rather underwent a transformation from religious to socioeconomic justification. So this new wave of hatred against the Jews encompassed diverse reasons and circumstances that rapidly changed from place to place. Motivations range from economic oppression to suspicion of Jewish thinkers, as well as psychological biases that fueled fear and xenophobia. Notably, this hatred culminated in the development of race theory ultimately leading to Nazism as a state policy. Following the Holocaust, modern and progressive anti-Semitism emerged with a shift in terminology from the Jew to encompassing the entire Jewish people. The state of Israel eventually politically convenient label Israelis. 
This term adapted both Islamic Arab nationalism and progressive ideology. In other words, anti-Semitism changed from being a religious form of persecution to a socioeconomic form of persecution to now a nationalistic form of hatred. So uh, anti-Semitism spreads and takes shape according to circumstances. Recent attacks on figures like Russian-Israeli Jewish businessmen exemplify reflecting a soft underbelly for anti-sentiments in Europe that developed in the hatred for Russia over the invasion of Ukraine. Anyone from Russia, even they had to flee from there, especially when they're part of the Jewish collective, is an easy target for anti-Semitic hatred. The arguments against these people are irrelevant. There will always be a reason to hate them. Either they're a rich person who takes advantage of others, or they're a poor person who's considered a parasite. Reasons to hate Jews vary across the entire spectrum. The, the hatred of Israel, for example, in Europe, is influenced by pro-Islamic fundamentalist forces, while in the United States, hatred of uh, Israel thrives within progressive enlightened societies. They attack Jewish and Israeli morality with current terms that are unauthentic and and uh, that they make no sense. The, uh, they, they criticize Jews for any reason that's handy. However, I think we have to recognize that the sources of hatred remains constant. The, uh, or, and they, they hate Israel because they hate Jews. The, 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 the all kind of new manifestations of hatred as they ultimately belong to the same old category of anti-Semitism. People who hate Israel because it's a Jewish state are anti-Semites, except they're anti, big time anti-Semites because they don't hate individual Jews, they hate the Jewish state. So, so we shouldn't use anti-Semitism as a means to absolve individuals or communities or the Jewish people from self-examination. We have to uphold Jewish and human values. The presence of anti-Semitism should not serve as a justification for overlooking shortcomings within the Jewish community, the Jewish society, or the Jewish state. We Jews, especially now, we just went through the high holiday period, we have to improve ourselves. Forget anti-Semitism. It's our job to be better people, to be better Jews, and the Jewish state has to be a state that stands out. So far, by the way, I think the state of Israel is doing a good job. Israel sends help to countries around the world when they have earthquakes, when they have floods, when they have natural disasters. A building collapsed in Miami a few years ago. The first ones there were as a team from Israel. We, we represent the Jewish people, we represent the Jewish state, and we have to be in the forefront of doing what is good, to set an example for the rest of the world. The, uh, 
We have to remain vigilant against anti-Semitism in all its forms, but we we must not take too seriously the ultra-modern anti-Semitic attacks against individuals and communities because much of it, the hate of the Jews stems from illogical and ir- irrational hatred. And we have to do the best we can to the best kind of people that we can. And we just have to ignore the anti-Semites. When I say ignore, obviously, there are times when they can't be ignored. We have to defend Jewish students against anti-Semitism. But I do not think that we have to look within ourselves and say, is there something about us that makes the anti-Semites correct? We have to be better people. We have to be better as a nation, better as Jews, forgetting what the anti-Semites think of us. At the same time, we have to fight anti-Semitism in all its forms. And that brings up another subject, by the way, something that I never thought would happen. A group of Reform and conservative rabbis were planning to protest against Israel in front of the UN. Uh, I remember seeing that they were going to protest. I didn't see in the news whether or not they actually protested. The claim that the, they claim that the protest is directed against Israel duly elected Prime Minister Netanyahu because his government is in support of judicial reform, which has divided the Israeli people. There's no mistake about it. Any protest at the UN against the representatives of the State of Israel will be seen by Israel's enemies, and there are plenty of them at the UN, they will see this as an attack against Israel by American Jews. Now, I look in the papers, I didn't see any reports that indeed the protest took place, but I'm assuming it did. Now, it would be different if the protest took place in front of the Israeli embassy or his consulate, or even in front of the hotel where Netanyahu is staying. But the UN is the central locus of hatred against Israel to begin with, which is condemned by the General Assembly and other bodies. The Israel is condemned by the General Assembly uh, and other bodies of the UN more frequently than all the other nations of the world combined. The nation state of the Jewish people at the UN is accused of apartheid, genocide, ethnic cleansing, and being undemocratic, while other nations that are actually guilty of all these crimes are given a pass. Now, if the rabbis go to the UN and protest against Israel, then they'll be giving credibility to those who don't like Israel by falsely claiming that the proposed judicial reforms will end democracy in Israel. Now, uh, the, uh, they didn't protest at the UN against the Palestinian leadership for claiming that Hitler murdered Jews because they were money lenders or Iranian Holocaust deniers, or the anti-democratic Arab and Muslim leaders. Their anger now is directed 
at Israel, the one nation that is singled out for double standard combination by the UN on a regular basis. The, by the way, the claims by these people, these demonstrators, are false. They reflect an ignorance of the role of judicial review in Western democracies that are governed by the rule of law. Now, the uh, Israel is better off for today's imperfect system of judicial review than even the less good proposed reforms, but that yes or no decision is not the only, even the most likely option. Compromise is possible, and hopefully there will be. And the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, has worked to achieve a compromise that moderates to a situation that both sides can live with. This struggle is still taking place today. Now, the, the problem is that extremists on both sides are rejecting reasonable compromises because they are benefiting from the protests and the counter-protests that are taking place all the time. See, uh, so, uh, interesting. The um, the, the current Israeli court is probably the most powerful in the democratic world. No other court, including the U.S., Great Britain, and other Western democracies, can overrule legislative or executive decisions based on lawsuits brought by ordinary citizens who are not individually harmed by these decisions. Other courts require what is known as standing to bring cases and controversies. This is not true in Israel. Other courts should not strike down decisions of duly elected executive officials on the grounds of unreasonableness, even extreme unreasonableness. They leave it to the elected officials to decide what's reasonable in a democracy. Now, I, I personally believe that the courts are of too much power. They decide what's reasonable. Reasonable is a very loose word they can give a lot of interpretation critics to. Many academic critics of the breadth of judicial review in Israel argue that it's, it's unelected, it's elitist, it's a judiciary that compromises pure democracy. The, uh, I would not, I myself would not favor an overhaul that the, the uh, current government's doing. There had to be some changes. Right now, the judges in Israel have, an, I believe, an inordinate amount of power. Israel is among the handful, really the handful, of the most democratic nations in the UN, regardless of how this controversy over judicial reform plays out, because it will be resolved here in Israel by democratic processes. There are weekly protests, the, and, it, it, and they're well organized uh, compared to what happens in France and other democracies. You know, I, I have a, a grandson who imports uh, Israeli flags from uh, China and uh, I don't know how well he's doing now because both the pro- the pro-court uh, uh, protesters, the anti-court protesters, wave Israeli flags. So whoever's selling Israeli flags 
is making an unusual amount of money. By the way, there was a very interesting thing that happened about uh, two months ago. There was a group of people leaving a protest. I forget whether they were protesting for or against the, uh, the court, but they were left and they came across a group that was going to protest in the opposite direction. They were protesting to the opposite of what this group was, and they didn't have enough flags. So the protesters leaving the protest gave some of their own flags to the protesters who were coming to protest against what they were protesting. So there's sort of a friendly form of protesting here in Israel. The the decision uh, about judicial reform should be made primarily and only by Israeli citizens, not by American rabbis who want to protest at the UN. And uh, and and uh, this is a complex issue regarding the role of the Israeli Supreme Court in the governance of, governance of its citizens. Now, you can protest as much as you want. Hopefully, a decision which will made that will leave everybody not quite satisfied. That is the nature of democracy. I think I mentioned this program uh, before. Uh, I once attended a meeting that it had to do with uh, state aid to religious education many years ago, and I still lived in the states. And when they, we spoke to the see the Speaker of the House of Representatives of the state of Pennsylvania. And um, it's a long story, but I, I probably have told the listeners in the past, uh, he quoted uh, Lincoln. And Lincoln was asked, do you vote according to your conscience? And Lincoln said, uh, I vote against the dictates of my conscience 80% of the time. So they said to him, how do you justify that? And Lincoln said, if I didn't vote against my conscience 80% of the time, I wouldn't have the opportunity to vote with my conscience the other 20% of the time, because that's the nature of politics. You don't always vote according to your conscience. You vote, you vote the way that is best in the long run, as you see what the long run should be, you have to compromise. That's the nature of democracy. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to, to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few words about something in which I'm certainly not an expert, but I read the headlines and I draw conclusions from what I see. So I want to say a few words about the Abraham Accords. We are now at the third anniversary of the so-called Abraham Accords. 
And it's coming at a time where there's been a lot of coverage, and they're starting to talk now about the progress uh, that Israel can make between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Now, this is obviously very important, but on another level, the Abraham Accords have also led to a tremendous number of opportunities for Israeli companies doing business with the Gulf states. If you look back over the last three years, we're now at the third anniversary, we can say that the Abraham Accords have far exceeded their expectations from a commercial perspective. Today, there are about $3 billion in annual bilateral trade between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, $3 billion. It doesn't count all the services. There's tourism and other non-goods trade that's being conducted together with the UAE, not just with the Emiratis, but trading partners from across the entire Middle East and also South Asia and beyond. So in total, this far exceeds $3 billion, and there is something called the UAE-Israel Business Council, and it forecasts that this to exceed $5 billion by the end of the year 2025. All of this did not exist 10 years ago, even five years ago, even four years ago. This is, this is very important. The, there is progress of the Abraham Accords. Israelis have been welcomed in the most dynamic trading hub. A lot of companies from places like India and even countries Israel doesn't have diplomatic relations with are doing business in the United Arab Emirates. There's a tremendous amount of third country trade that plagues takes place through the United Arab Emirates, making use of the country's infrastructure, logistics, and transportation links. So the UAE is a really convenient business hub. So by doing business with the UAE, Israel ends up doing business, some of which don't even diplomatically recognize Israel. The trade between Israel and that region has been normalized and is a blossoming of commercial ties. There are with countries Israel's had relations with, like Egypt and Jordan, and with new markets as well, there are no official relations. What's happened is that the stigma has been taken away in large part, and many people from these other countries that don't even recognize Israel now feel comfortable engaging with Israelis. So there's a lot of new discussion about economic ideas that can knit the Middle East into a trading corridor that stretches from India via the Middle East to Europe. So these things inspire the imagination. And not just because it passes through so many countries, but also because the infrastructure implications apparently are very large.
as Israelis learn about the UAE and its possibilities, it's also changing somebody's understanding of what the Accords will bring as they enter the fourth year. In the beginning, some believed that Israel startups might be able to scale up in the UAE. The question is, has this happened? The same is not yet. Some Israeli companies have scaled up, but not in large numbers. However, many found the UAE as a market in its own right and also a place to develop their sales and business development and expand eastward, being here as part of the principal business hub in the Middle East. The UAE is a convenient location to serve India and other areas in Africa and Asia. Israelis that have established themselves in the UAE is using this pretty much as an offshore platform to scale up and outwards toward other countries. So, doing business in the UAE has certainly distinct advantages. People can travel with no restriction, entry and departure is straightforward. It's simple to get a work permit, I understand. The bureaucracy is pretty manageable, and you can hire there from any else, other place in the world, and the log- logistics in the UAE can make it easy to ship merchandise uh, here and to other places. To deal with anything east of Israel, there's no really no better place to operate than the UAE. Israel is quite difficult from a regulatory perspective, and the authorities can be unpredictable here. There's disruptions and protests and strikes and holidays. Uh, this, uh, this doesn't happen in the UAE. The UAE is a 24-7 economy. Don't, they don't allow protests and strikes, and there are no holidays. So Israel offers benefits mainly around innovation and uh, Israel's global orientation. The, uh, there are things here that simply drive the innovation economy. Israel's tech success is a shining example of what Israel offers. As far as technology is concerned, there is a competition, and obviously Israelis face an uphill battle to penetrate many other markets. So, but by operating out of the UAE, Israel can find a lot of potential partners that goes beyond Israel. The uh, the uh, there is, for example, a power company in Dubai. They have one of the most ambitious and effective solar initiatives in the world. They're producing a huge amount of power from renewable resources. So the, the there's another question that really has to be addressed, and that is whether opening up Israel to the dynamic hub of the Gulf would change Israel. I don't know. The, if some people thought that exposure to an open, efficient, and economically dynamic new market would change Israel. 
Now, obviously, Israel has a tremendous amount to learn from the UAE, and the people understand the lessons. So if Israel can make improvements to its business environment, and you can copy most of them from the, what the UAE rulebook is like. Bureaucratic efficiency, tax certainty, ease of import and export, movement of people, import of skilled labor, and engagement with the private sector, all these kind of things can be learned from the UAE. So on top of this, Israel has a lot of unique capabilities. There, there, uh, is, Israel produces incredible people who do amazing things, and uh, Israel is really unparalleled in many areas. Israelis innovate like no one else. They experiment with new business models like no one else. And it's interesting. One can say that Israelis are programmed to question and challenge barriers. The cost of living in Israel is very high, and the judicial reforms that are now underway and the protests that are ongoing here may be scaring away investors. Now, the, also the political system here and the government isn't focused on business in a real way. So now Israel today has grown to a population of about 10 million people. Israelis are operating in the Gulf. Uh, Israel is doing little to encourage foreigners to come and compete as part of a business hub in Israel. So we have to ask ourselves, what, are, is, what is Israel doing to make life easier for foreign investors? The answer is not much. It's the, uh, Israel is, is, is the startup nation. Precisely because Israel is such a small market, Israelis have a very global outlook and are expert at taking their products and technology to the world. I have a number of friends, and, in, and uh, I have a number of grandchildren, by the way, who are involved in technologies here in Israel that they are selling to foreign countries, including the United States. One of my grandsons, recently representing a company here in Israel, spent time in Iowa dealing with the corn crop because the Israelis have come up with methods for making the corn crop more efficient. So the, the main um, product that Israel has to sell is brain power, and that can be sold all around the world. So what happened was that peace with the UAE and Bahrain pretty much normalized the atmosphere with Morocco and Egypt and Jordan and makes it more possible to have peace with Saudi Arabia and even with Oman. So peace with Saudi would make it make easier for peace with Pakistan and perhaps with Indonesia, which does not have relationships today. The the problem is, in those countries, they're not really democracies. It makes it complicated. 
So it's hard to say what it'll be, but there is no doubt, and I'm certainly not an expert, but no doubt that the Abraham Accords, which are now three years old, to has pretty much opened Israel up to the UAE, which is a tremendously dynamic hub to the rest of the world. So having connections with the hub opens up Israel to a lot of countries, some of which we don't even have relations with, but are willing to do business if it's to their advantage. As I said at the beginning, I'm not an expert in this subject, but there's no doubt that the Abram Accords have been tremendously progressive and beneficial to the state of Israel. And that's something we have to keep in mind as we begin the new year. Now I want to go on to a couple different topics that I just became aware of. These topics are not related to each other, and they don't get big headlines, and that's why I like to to, uh, let the listeners know about them. Uh, First of all, as interestingly enough, you know, Israel pretty much closes down on Yom Kippur. Uh, I was staying in a hotel in Yom Kippur, and I was right near the entrance to the city of Jerusalem, and it's remarkable. It's uh, I was facing from the hotel window. I was facing one of the business, uh, most busy intersections at the at the entrance of the city, and it was quiet. The only few vehicles that were passing belonged to the police or to the border patrol. The lights were blinking, uh, and other than that, there was absolutely no traffic in this most really busy busy area. It turns out that on Yom Kippur, one day, a little over 24 hours, there was a significant reduction in air pollution, which is primarily primarily comes from emissions from vehicles. Uh, They have air quality monitoring stations distributed throughout Israel, and they checked them out on Yom Kippur. Now, most streets in Israel are closed on Yom Kippur, and uh, any Israelis who chose to ride, ride, ride bikes and spend time with their families, the reduction in pollution underscores the crucial role of transportation as a predominant contributor to urban air pollution. Specifically, the Environmental Protection Ministry reported the concentrations of nitrogen dioxide and air pollutant associated with respiratory problems and reduced immune response experienced a notable decrease during Yom Kippur. The, uh, the, uh, it, it's interesting. They had, uh, generally they have, I'm not familiar with these units, but uh, generally they have uh, 500, excuse me, 500 PPB, daily environmental standard, and they drop from 500, it's called parts per billion, they drop from 500 to about 38. That's a tremendous drop. The significant improvement in air quality on Yom Kippur underscores 
the critical role of transportation as the main contributor to air pollution. So uh, it's interesting, even, even on Yom Kippur, many factors may not have been operational. The impact of large-scale industrial activity was felt in the air. They found that, uh, that benzene concentrations uh, uh, showed an uptick in proximity to certain industrial zones, particularly in Haifa and Ashdod. But everything dropped significantly in places like Jerusalem and television, where there's almost no uh, industry. The uh, that's that's how Yom Kippur affected air pollution. Now, another subject, not not a very nice one. Police arrested stone throwers and reckless drivers during Yom Kippur. The uh, it's interesting. The two stone throwers were arrested on, on Sunday night in Yom Kippur. Uh, the, uh, they, they had people who were throwing stones at passerbys. The, uh, why these people are throwing stones, I have no idea. The, the people were, there were some people arrested for reckless driving Sunday night because the roads were empty and the few people who drove, drove recklessly. Uh, police were stationed throughout Jerusalem to prevent re- vehicular traffic. Law enforcement sought to limit traffic from eastern to western Jerusalem. Eastern Jerusalem is primarily Arabs, Muslims. So uh, they were trying to avoid civil disputes and traffic accidents. Kippur is a time when children take to the empty streets to ride bicycles and scooters, so police caution parents and drivers to remain watchful for kids' safety. The, uh, interest, interestingly enough, Mugin David Adom, Israel's Red Cross, treated 307 people who suffered injuries connected to bicycles, rollerblades, scooters, and skateboards. So, uh, so, uh, the, the, the uh, no serious security incidents were reported. The police were on high alert and called on the public to be vigilant and report unusual events and suspicious, suspicious, suspicious objects to the police. So, uh, by the way, on Wednesday, before Yom Kippur, police advised citizens to carry legal firearms on, uh, on the High Holy Day so the, uh, in particular, uh, police officers were stationed around the Kotel area in the old city to protect pilgrims. So, uh, interesting, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, is a special day, not only in terms of religion, but in terms of traffic, especially here in Jerusalem. At any rate, these are some of the news this week. I want to wish all the listeners a healthy and happy holiday coming up now, and the holiday of Sukkot. Uh, Let's all be well and healthy, and I'll be speaking you with, with you again after the holiday. Take care of yourself.